Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. This is also episode 8.0 of my Black Sabbath series, Ark Sabbath. The last time I spoke to you, we were discussing the 1989 album Headless Cross and the 1990 album Tear, or Tire, as I actually learned today when rereading Joel McIver's book. Uh, it's pronounced like the word tire, T-Y-R-E or T-I-R-E, although I think I'm going to continue to mispronounce it as Tear. I just feel more comfortable with the incorrect pronunciation. Sorry, Joel. But yes, uh, so we covered off those two albums. They were released during a period of relative stability in Black Sabbath, especially after what we had between 85 and 87. Tony Martin stuck around for two albums, or sorry, three albums in a row. Uh, Cozy Powell was the drummer on the last two. Uh, Neil Murray was the bass player on the Headless Cross tour and continued into the Tear album. And um, generally, there was very little turmoil during that period, especially when you compare it to what happened in the previous few years. Um, but I did mention on the last episode that this wasn't going to last forever. And of course it didn't. So in this episode, I get deep into all of the several lineup changes that happened around this time. I hinted at it last time. You've got Geezer Butler, Ronnie James Dio, Vinnie Apice, Rob Halford, and even Ozzy Osbourne playing a part in the next uh, couple of years of Black Sabbath. So it was a very interesting time in the band, and it really set the wheels in motion, I think, for what was about to come a few years down the line. And there was a lot of fallout, and unfortunately, we lost... Uh, what could have been a fantastic lineup that could have lasted a long time. But I'm skipping ahead here. Before we get into any of that, I'd just like to mention some of the highlights or notable songs that uh, were featured on the previous two albums, Tear and Headless Cross. So going back to Headless Cross, you heard a bit of When Death Calls at the end of the last episode. And that's actually uh, one of my favorite songs from that period, but no need to cover all ground again. So um, one of my favorites from that album, an absolute juggernaut of heavy metal riffs and fantastic melodies. This is the title track from the album Headless Cross, Headless Cross. So yeah, I think if there's one song that really epitomizes the sound of Black Sabbath during this period, I'd make a strong case for it being Headless Cross. Another highlight on that album for me was the song Devil and Daughter uh, that I discussed with my guests last time. Is it about Ozzy, or, or sorry, is it about Don Arden and Sharon Arden slash Osborne? Well, you can decide, but here's a clip of Devil and Daughter.
will have heard from Tear. The intro to this episode was a clip of the song Jerusalem. Um, but another one, the final one I'd like to touch on from this period, is a song that kind of got a bit mocked um, last time. And it's the very commercial sounding Feels Good To Me, which was the single released from the album Tear, which really had nothing else to do, or nothing to do with the rest of the theme of the album or the loose religious theme of the album. Uh, but let it not ever be said that Black Sabbath were anything but versatile. Um, there's lots of negatives in there, maybe a double negative, I'm not sure. But you cannot say that Black Sabbath were not a versatile band. That's what I meant to say. And this is an example of that. Now, were they writing a song deliberately to try and get on the radio? Yes. Was it a lost cause? Obviously, yes, because they didn't get on the radio, let's face it, especially not in the 1990 or probably ever again um, after that point. But you can't blame them for trying. So this is a very, very commercial sounding ballad um, sung by Tony Martin. And it reminds me a lot of some of the stuff I heard or like we covered off on Seventh Star. Uh, those Glenn Hughes kind of almost crooning uh, bluesy ballads. Uh, so this is a clip of Feels Good To Me. Alright, so that's going to do it for highlights from the last two albums, Headless Cross and Tear. We move along into the 1990s and on that note, I am going to consult Mick Wall's book, Symptom of the Universe, to lend us some context about what was going on in Black Sabbath around this period of time. And luckily, the section I'm going to read from has interviews with some of the band members from the period. So that gives it a deeper level of detail and uh, depth, I suppose, which is very necessary if we want to cover off everything that happened during this period. There's a lot to keep track of. So Mick Wall wasn't really the biggest fan of Headless Cross or Tear. And I thought it might be nice to introduce an alternate appraisal of these albums, because last time my guests were speaking quite positively about these, uh, for the most part, I'd say. So um, this is Mick's opinion on Headless Cross. So he he starts, the first to reflect Tony Martin's songwriting skills, as well as Cozy Powell in a strong co-writer's role, and as an overall voice in Iommi's ear, Headless Cross, released in April 1989, was a fearfully underwhelming achievement. In an apparent attempt to return the band to its heyday image as would-be musical occultists and lyrical merchants of doom, there is a loosely conceptual strand to the album, but not one that engages on anything like the level of their classic Aussie or Dio era work. All the misfires and wrong turns are there to be seen in this first single and video from the album, the title track, Headless Cross. With the camera focusing for the first minute almost entirely on Powell, as Jim Trim as the horrible compressed drum sound and stereotypical 80s production demands, and Iommi, standing, as he had for two decades, stage right, stone-faced, dressed in black, crosses dangling, older now, though, less sure. Martin, the supposed frontman, is first half-glimpsed through a sea of dry ice. When he does finally come into focus, it is not worth the wait. 
His hand-ringing and vibrato-drenched vocals, his shapes, borrowed almost entirely from the rock encyclopedia, are all delivered to the point of generic rock cliché. By this stage, the rock press had jokingly taken to calling Martin by his supposed nickname, The Cat. In fact, he'd been first called just Cat in his earlier band, The Alliance, due to his likeness to the early 70s children's television character, Cat Weasel. An unwashed, hairy rake and failed alchemist accidentally transported from medieval England to the 20th century. It was a horribly apt description for the heavily postured, ultimately meaningless theatre Martin's histrionic vocals and cringe-inducing stage presence conjured up. The rest of the album was hardly better. Opening with a ponderous and not in the least forbidding one-minute instrumental titled The Gates of Hell, and ending barely 40 minutes later with another dry ice and video lightning ballad entitled Nightwing, it was the sort of rock-by-numbers fare the Scorpions had already taken to a higher level, but which worked well enough to satisfy audiences in Europe, where English is not a first language and where, unsurprisingly, the album sold respectably. It also did better in Britain, where it tiptoed to number 31, but not so in America, where it belly crawled to number 115. Although session bassist Lawrence Cottle appeared in the Headless Cross video, by the time both the single and the album were released, Sabbath were back on tour, but with Neil Murray now safely ensconced in the revamped lineup. He agrees it was a strange time to be in Black Sabbath. Playing Sun City, etc., left the band in a bad way, whose music and reputation needed repairing badly, says Neil. Although Tony Iommi now relied on Cozy to shoulder much of the burden, in the public mind it was always going to be down to Tony Martin to somehow re-establish the Sabbath identity as a band to take seriously again. It was always going to be an uphill task for an unknown and inexperienced singer such as Martin. As Neil Murray says, To find someone who can be as individual and charismatic as Ozzy Osbourne is virtually impossible. To find somebody who can sing as well as Ronnie James Dio, plus his stage presence and songwriting talent, is also virtually impossible. There are incredibly few good rock singers in the UK. So to find a singer who could make a reasonable fist at a job in Tony Martin is just about the best that Black Sabbath were ever going to be able to do. Unfortunately, he lacks charisma and believability as a frontman for Sabbath, which all the vocal ability in the world doesn't make up for. Still, compared to just about any of the alternatives, he was okay. So that's Neil Murray's account. Now, Mick continues, a point that was painfully emphasised by the disastrous early end to the Martin lineup's one and only US tour. Originally scheduled for 36 dates from May to July 1989, ticket sales were so poor, the tour had to be cancelled after just eight shows. According to Neil Murray, how true it is, I don't know, but there was much talk at the time that the Osbournes did all they could to scupper the tour, getting people to paste cancelled stickers on gig posters, etc. But I think the major problem was the lack of clout that IRS records had in the US. There was a serious lack of promotion. Mick continues, as always, it was somebody else's fault. In Iommi's words, Cozy and myself went into record stores in Toronto, Canada, where we're pretty big, but nobody could get the record. It wasn't in the shops. No one could get it. Unbelievable. We had such a fight with the local rep. I really came close to chinning him. It was really that bad. At the end of the day, it's us that suffer. They say, oh, it didn't sell. Well, how can you sell if you haven't got it in the bloody record shops? Now, that's just a taster of what Mick says about the album Headless Cross. He's not really any more generous to the album Tear. But I just wanted to give an alternative appraisal on that period of the band. Um, so that's kind of what the rock press in the UK 
may have thought at the time about Headless Cross and Tony Martin as well. And Neil Murray's opinions as well are obviously interesting. Um, him mentioning the lack of charisma that Tony Martin had as a frontman, which echoes the sentiments of several of my guests on the last episode and the previous one, um, that Tony Martin might have had singing talent in spades, but to replicate an Ozzy Osbourne or Ronnie James Dio or to indeed try to replace one of those two massively charismatic figures really may have been his downfall. He couldn't do it. So it's worth noting at the time, after the Tear Tour, the Black Sabbath lineup consisted of Tony Martin on vocals, Tony Iommi on guitar, Jeff Nichols on keyboards, Neil Murray on bass, and Cozy Powell on drums. Now, this entire lineup almost was about to change, and the seeds were set in motion when Geezer Butler guested on two of the live shows of the Tear Tour coming up on stage to play bass. I'll let Martin Popoff uh, explain. Talking about the tear tour, he says, A memorable night was had at the Hammersmith Odeon on September 8th when Geezer and Brian May put in cameos. Geezer's two-night appearance might be seen as the first seed planted of the Dio lineup reunion to come. So that's interesting. Now, not far after this time, Geezer Butler also shows up at a Dio show as well to play bass. I will let Joe Sigler from the website Black-Sabbath explain. Well, at the end of the the end of the tier tour um i've seen reports that it was cut short early due to ticket sales or whatnot but i i i'm not sure about that one um i do know the tier tour never came to the united states um uh, why i don't know but um at that point geezer had decided he was going to get back together with tony and black sabbath so that led to the departure of neil murray um Somewhere around there is a relatively famous story of Geezer going to see a Dio gig in Minneapolis. Um, and Ronnie has told the story that Geezer famously forgot to bring his bass with him, but um, so he didn't have to get up and play. But they had some meeting after the show. And, you know, Tony, excuse me, Geezer had told Ronnie that he was getting back together with Tony, not intending on putting that lineup back together again. But they was just, you know, visit an old friend because I believe the story goes they hadn't been, been, they haven't met face to face in like 10 years at that point. So it was just kind of a see an old friend thing. But then they decided, hey, you know, let's, let's call Tony. And, you know, they decided to put it back together again. So they got, now at that point, it was still Cozy Powell because he was, he was the incumbent drummer. Um, and that's the one, one combination in the history of the band that I'm bummed out we never got on an actual album. There's some demos out there with that, but the, the rhythm section of Butler and Powell, I would have loved to have heard that on an album. Um, there's demos and whatnot, and I'm sure they have stuff in their archives, but as you well know, uh, hashtag slapback, they're releasing, the releasing um, demo stuff is not really their thing. So I don't think we'll I don't think we'll ever see it. In an interesting section from Martin Popoff's book, he quotes an interview with Bill Ward, who gives his opinion on the various different lineups of Black Sabbath. And it's interesting to me because we haven't really heard from Bill in a long time, not since Born Again. He hasn't featured at all. Uh, he would again later, obviously. But by 1990, and with the reunion with the Mob Rules lineup, Bill wasn't considered or factored in or featured um, in a very long time. So. Here is um, Popoff talking about Bill 
and Bill's interview quotes then, which follow. So he says, A final word goes to Bill Ward, who, it seems, as time goes on, has emerged as Black Sabbath's artistic conscience, always much more than a drummer, essentially the keeper and protector of Sabbath's soul. So here's Bill. I've listened to them all, but I have mixed feelings, says Bill on the Tony Martin albums. One gets a sense that out of all the ex-members, Bill is the only one who would have a curiosity for all the albums he wasn't on. It was difficult for me to listen because I listened to them from a personal point of view, not just as a listener. I hear Tony playing and I felt at times he wasn't being supported by the rhythm section. Now, I know pretty much all the drummers that he's worked with. Some of them are good friends of mine. And I also know that some of them are extremely good timekeepers and great drummers. But sometimes I can hear things that he was playing and I'm going, oh my God, can anybody hear what he's actually doing right now? I would have supported him totally different as a drummer. So I have a tendency to be a bit critical. There are things I never would have done melodically against riffs that he was playing. There are things I wouldn't have done as a drummer. It was really, really tough for me to believe in all the different lineups of Black Sabbath. The thing is, for me, Sabbath was part of my life, and I've been with Tony since we were teenagers, so it was tough to listen to Tony carrying the Sabbath flag, if you like, holding on to the name with the different lineups. In order not to react with sadness or resentment, I had to go and let go of all of that, so I wouldn't get hurt. I had to let it go. I had to let go of Tony. I'd gone to Tony in early 84, 85 and said, just be careful. And I don't know if what I was saying was falling on deaf ears. I was kind of saying, put it to rest, let it go. I was just sharing my opinions and Tony was kind enough to let me. But I had to accept that he was going to go on and on and do his own thing. So as an outsider, looking in at my friend, who I loved, it was tough to know that he was going through some pretty tough periods. But at the same time, even if I didn't particularly like what was going on, I supported Tony. There were some great songs, but other songs I felt were cliched. And they were cliched in the sense of jumping on a bandwagon, on Sabbath's own bandwagon. There was some incredibly good guitar playing, good ideas. There was one album, I bought the album, I forget which one it is, but I had to play this particular piece about 50 times, it was driving me nuts. It's side one, song one, and there's this riff that Tony plays, and Cozy tightens really well with Tony. And I listened to it and I went, oh my God. So again, even if I wasn't involved in any way, I was still connecting with him. The same with Ozzy, especially with some of Ozzy's slower stuff. I just love it. I'm like an Ozzy Osbourne fan. There's still a connection. I hear a song and I think I would have liked to have been playing on that with him. So there we go. Nice to hear from Bill around that period. And nice to hear that he actually bothered his arse to listen to those albums and express an opinion on them in a respectful way as well. Um, a lot of it just wasn't his cup of tea and there was a lot of personal pain attached to him even listening to them at all. So I'm going to jump here to Joel McIver's book, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And Joel is discussing the period of transition between Tony Martin and Ronnie James Dio, between Neil Murray and Geezer Butler, and generally setting the scene at the time in... 1990-1991. So he's just talking about the Tear Tour here. He says, Highlights of the tour included special guest appearances at some Sabbath shows by related and unrelated musicians such as Ian Gillen and Brian May, and not to mention Geezer Butler, whose presence fueled rumours that a classic lineup reunion might be on the cards yet again. In fact, Butler took over the bass spot once more in December, displacing Murray, who continued with the successful Sessions career that he had forged before joining Sabbath. For a month or so, the band, now Iommi and Butler, plus Martin, Nichols and Powell, debated their next move, but reunion fever was definitely in the air, and the announcement came in January 1991 that Ronnie James Dio would be replacing Tony Martin. Martin, somewhat blindsided by the move, he had, after all, just led 
Sabbath out of a dismal pit they'd been in at the time of Seven Star and the Eternal Idol, wasted no time in setting up his own solo album deal with a European label. As he later said, When Ronnie rejoined the band, I was doing a solo album. I still have, at the moment, a deal with Polydor in Germany. It's a Tony Martin solo album called Back Where I Belong. There were 32 musicians on the album, including Brian May from Queen, Ringo Starr's son Zach on drums. I even had a gospel choir on a track. He looked back on his time with Sabbath with mixed feelings, it seemed, especially towards the industry itself. We had a problem with the record company at the time. They weren't advertising the shows or the record properly. We could have had a lot more success if we'd had help from the record company, that's all I'm saying. Many of the problems in Sabbath's history were not of the band's making. A lot of it had to do with contracts and company bullshit. Iommi echoed this, saying, For me, that was very difficult. IRS weren't getting the albums into the stores. It wasn't what I expected it would be. Miles Copeland personally wanted to take it on. Uh, just a note, Miles Copeland is the head of IRS. He's why I signed with him in the first place, because all the other record companies that were interested wanted artistic involvement. I didn't want that. I wanted to do my own thing. Miles saw that. He said, look, you know how Black Sabbath stuff's got to be. You write it, and I'll put it out. I like the way he approached that. Once I signed with them, Miles, as much as he wanted, wasn't involved. It went to somebody else. And it was somebody else who didn't like us, so it was difficult. Right, okay, so that sets the scene. Wheels are in motion. Ronnie James Dio back in the band. It's announced in January 1991. The December prior to that, Geezer Butler had already resumed the bass playing role uh, from Neil Murray. So Cozy Powell is still in the band at this point, but Ronnie James Dio and Cozy Powell do not really get on with each other. Um, it's kind of old rivalries from Rainbow. Not necessarily rivalries, but tension that's left over from that time period. And during this period, they... Accounts vary, but they jam together for a few months to six months, and nothing really clicks. Uh, and then Cozy Pell has an unfortunate horse riding accident and is incapacitated with a broken pelvis. So rather than wait around, Dio suggests that Vinnie Apice rejoin the band and they reunite the Mob Rules era lineup. The lineup that also released Live Evil and actually ended up causing so many arguments that the band broke up, but. Uh, the band agrees, Tony agrees, and Vinnie Apice is drafted in, and that's where we are. It's the start of 91, everybody's on the same page, and they are recording the album Dehumanizer. Then, just when everything seemed to be going harmoniously, for reasons that still remain unclear to this day, Ronnie James Dio quits. And what do you do when Ronnie James Dio, or your singer in general, quits Black Sabbath? Well, of course, they go back to Tony Martin. So Tony Martin comes in and re-records what Dio had done up to that point for Dehumanizer. So, a version of Dehumanizer, or at least some of it, exists with Tony Martin on vocals. Now, Dio would eventually change his mind and return, finish the Dehumanizer album, and after that point they would release it and go out on tour. But it was always very interesting to me that a version of Dehumanizer, or at least some songs, exists with Tony Martin as a singer, and I'll let Joe Sigler pick up the story from here. This is one of those stories that's been out there so long, I can't remember where it's sourced from. It probably was a magazine interview somewhere that everybody's just repeated over and over and over again. But right now, talking to you in 2021, I can't remember what the original source of Dio quit during the making of Dehumanizer was. Oh, actually, the funny thing is, now I don't know whether he was messing with me because I have multiple pieces of proof that Tony Omi likes to play practical jokes on people. But when I mentioned that the Tony Martin Dehumanizer, his immediate response was, what? All right what um and I, and I said okay follow me here's the logic i said you, you brought dio back and he goes yeah and he goes cozy had the horse accident had to leave yeah you brought Vinny back 
Yeah. You recorded Dehumanizer, or at least most of it. Yeah. And then Dio quit. And you got Tony Martin back. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> One of my observations over the years is that the allegiances of Tony, Iommi and Geezer Butler seem to flip between being loyal to Dio and being loyal to Ozzy, depending on who currently was in Black Sabbath or Heaven and Hell at the time. I asked Joe Sigler if he'd noticed this as well. Um, I've actually never thought about that before, ever. So, I've never thought about... I mean, the only thing I can think of is I remember there's the, there was that thing when they were doing the Forbidden Album. No, 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 no. They were doing the Cross Purposes album because if you remember the timeline, Dio quit at the end of the Dehumanizer tour because he didn't feel Black Sabbath should have to open for their own former lead singer. Um, so he quit at the end of the Dehumanizer tour. They were supposed to get Tony Martin in, but there was some issue with... with work visas or something he couldn't legally come into the country those, those costa mesa 92 shows were supposed to be tony martin but they got rob halford because they couldn't get tony martin due to a weird visa issue um so shortly after that if you remember after the costa mesa shows there was some talk that they were going to put mach one back together again and it was going to be a permanent going forward thing um, there was talk back and forth and lawyers and managers and brother, you know how that shit goes. It takes forever. Um, while that was going on, the story goes that I only got the thinking that this isn't going to work out. Let's start working on an album. So they got Tony Martin in and Bobby Rondinelli on the side and started working on material while they were still talking with Ozzy about a permanent reunion. Um, so maybe the story does speak to your allegiance thing, but not in the way you, you intended because they, they're like, all right, we're, we want to work this out with Ozzy, but we also know Ozzy. So they, they thought, well, we should start cross purposes was supposed to come out in 93, but it was delayed because and they were still waiting to see what happened with Oz. And when they finally realized it wasn't going to happen, they're like, all right, let's just go with this. So some of the lesser names in the in the lineup, like uh, I can't remember whether it was Ron Keel or Dave Donato that said it, because basically both of those guys didn't progress beyond the, the demo stage. They just, I mean, they may have farted around in the studio, but they never like went into, okay, let's record this album level of stuff. Um, and one of them, I cannot remember which one, in an interview said, um, basically it was mostly Ozzy and Geezer sitting around, excuse me, Tony and Geezer sitting around wishing they could get Ozzy back. Okay, so that's enough of the backstory for now. Uh, we'll get to a bit more of it later on, but I think it's about time we got into the Dehumanizer album. So I spoke to Philip about the first time he heard the album Dehumanizer. I remember the first time I saw or heard Black Sabbath. It was 1992. Uh, I am in my 40s. So I was of the MTV generation and the TV crimes video came on and it was just, yeah, it's badass. It's a killer song. It was fantastic. So the first time I've heard Black Sabbath, the first time I understood who they were, it was with the Dio lineup. And I had no, at that time, no knowledge of the personnel of the lineup. So I did not know that Ozzy used to be the singer because, you know, here I'm 14, first intro, Dehumanizer is out. I went and bought the cassette. I still have it. 
Um, and, you know, I listened to it a lot. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. I bought the humanizer. I listened to it a lot. Um, I was, you know, it was 1992 and it, for us 90s metalheads, a lot of stuff happened at the same time because the 90s were everything happened, you know, death metal, black metal, the extreme metal. I was absorbing all of this. I had been about, I've been a metalhead in 1992 for about maybe a year. And I was going down all of the avenues. I was just absorbing it all. So there was a massive, massive amount of, of, of content and, and music to absorb. Um, I would say probably about, two, I listened to the humanizer a lot. It was, it was, it was huge for me. Um, but I didn't check out the other Dio albums. So heaven and hell mob rules that didn't, become anything for me until later i would say definitely this is probably the most uh, sabbath sounding of the three which is why probably i i don't like i mean the first two songs for example computer god i i don't computer god after all the dead um i don't really like the way dio sings i mean it's almost like you can't recognize him i mean you can't yeah, I mean, for me, it's um, yeah. I don't like the way his his voice uh, sounds. But I know, I know that that this is something. I mean, this is like the start, right? This is a, a kind of a, of the starting point where well, Dio himself says has says that right at a certain point that he was tired of of writing, you know, all about uh, dragons, if you wish, again, you know, and and medieval stuff and all that, and he wanted to kind of show, you know, that he was also other things and so he had started this sort of uh, of new direction with the humanizer which he then you know carried on to his his uh, solo stuff like strange highways uh, um yeah just a few albums after that he went back to killing the dragons so i mean i don't think that lasted for very long but yeah that's not what we want to hear from from dio right although i think every now and again uh you know bands try and 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 i don't know update themselves i suppose to to you know they want to write songs that are probably more relevant to the times and so you have a song like computer god where you know people are worshiping basically computers as gods uh and i think it was just you know probably something he thought you know was was more uh, relatable and more uh, up to date uh, than uh, talking about yeah medieval knights and kings and <laughs> i love dehumanizer yeah uh, recently it's actually kind of i've always mob rules has always been my favorite of them uh, but recently dehumanizer just kind of trumped it just because it's very much it's got that 90s production uh that i like in metal I guess you'd say a little ahead of its time. Like, I think it was out of it. Like, you know, I don't think it was received as well as it would have been even a couple of years later. It's funny because Geezer's back in the mix. So, but Geezer's bringing a lot of a different flavor at that point because uh, he's kind of moved towards his solo kind of stuff and he gets into more industrial kind of vibes, which I dig. That's kind of my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm like stoner doom, industrial metal, um, even groovier, borderline new metal stuff. I like more because it's kind of like, in, in that moving thing, as opposed to like more traditional metal. I kind of go in that that lane. And uh, yeah, it's got kind of this great dystopian future vibes with the lyrics and Dio just goes to a next level with the, with the anger. And the, even his solo catalog line this time, I love Strange Highways, I love Angry Machines, the Tracy G stuff, the 90s shit is, is dope. And like, yeah, Dehumanizer, 
definitely top album for me. Yeah, what was it? Was it Lock Up the Wolves before that? Or yeah, yeah, that one's still very mystical. And uh, what? Yeah, yeah, Dio's stuff when he went solo, he very much. Uh, none of it's really mob rulesy. It's more. It gets more mystical. Because um, that's what I like about mob rules. It's got a good mix. Um, even the ones that like the Lady Evil and stuff like that. Like it's just kind of, it's touching on the mystical stuff, but it's not full. He drives it home. There's something about rainbows. Does he talk about rainbows at all in Dehumanizer? I don't think he does. No, there's no rainbows. It's very human and very like uh, dystopian Terminator shit, right? I'm trying to think actually that like when I got into metal, it would have been obviously like high school and shit. Um, and I know like, I just missed Pantera on the tail end kind of thing. So a lot of like my entry to metal is of course, all that um, typo negative was huge and like Metallica Megadeth, like kind of gothier industrial stuff. Um, Nine Inch Nails, that kind of stuff. Um, but I definitely, as far as when I look at it in the perspective of it being, it, it is kind of like, yeah, it's a weird little ano anomaly, but the fact that they came back later um, and revisited that material and really did it justice in a different, because like I said, like when I, when I listened to Dehumanizer, it sounds a little ahead of its time if I'm thinking about it as a 92 album. It sounds very mid nineties, late nineties, a little bit more groove to it. I think it's a killer, yeah, killer record front to back. There's no, there's no duds for me. And I was surprised by it that way. Um, and actually when I was doing the podcast and like I was telling people like, I'm just getting into Dio and like I got kind of hot on Mob Rules a lot of the guys that I kind of trust their, uh, their guidance, they were like, wait till you get to the humanizer, man. That's your wheelhouse. And it was, um, that's very much, uh, sonically what I like and scathing, uh, Dio, the power's immense at that point. And I like the way that Dio evolved, devolves, I guess. I find with his voice gets a little bit more character to it when, when he's older, obviously he's probably not, uh, overthinking it as much. Um, he feels very comfortable and his, yeah, he rips into certain things. It's amazing. Maybe too late, I would say. Too late is probably my favorite track in this album because, again, it's more ballady. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's more like a classic Dio ballad. Uh, so, yeah, if I had to pick, I'd pick that. There's a couple of tracks on there that are very cool too. Like um, Sins of the Father sounds like an Aussie song to me. Like the tone of it. And I, I think secretly Dio is just like the biggest Aussie fanboy around, but that's going back into my conspiracy thing. A lot of it's propagated by fans. There's obviously a reason why he wanted to join Black Sabbath. You wouldn't want to join a band, like team up with those guys if you didn't like Aussie to some extent. And uh, uh, yeah, it's one of those ones I'm putting out there. I'm trying to, I'm trying to bridge the gap. Uh, there's no sense uh, clashing about which type of Sabbath you like better at this point. I don't think, I think what we need to be doing as fans is, driving towards encouraging them to, to embrace their entire history in, in a sense. Um, let them know, instead of just saying like, ah, yeah, it was shit when it wasn't Aussie. Well, like they're going to pick up on that vibe and they're going to be like, okay, well, I guess if that's what everybody wants, then we'll just keep putting out Paranoid. And I mean, it's important. I know that like they have, the marketing have their things where there's like, well, we'll put out whatever sells fast, but embracing your history is, is very important with these legacy acts. Um, and there's some shit that's going on here. Dehumanizer, um, that's very influential to a different style of music that, that, that might've boomed and might've peaked and done its thing. So maybe that's not what, maybe that's why they're not revisiting it. Whereas some of the early Sabbath stuff is always, there's always that uh, 
stoner doom scene that that the first six albums are like religion to them so they're gonna sell well something else that's interesting i think about uh, dio and ozzy which is a parallel is the fact that their careers were managed by their wives again you know very very strong women <laughs> who again you know had obviously their husband's best uh, interests in in mind and and would do anything to defend them would go to great lengths to uh, to do that so um so yeah i mean i i can see where where the source of conflict would, would come although you know it's it's actually ironic to think that it was sharon osborne who introduced tony ayomi to to dio so who knows <laughs> you know <laughs> i brought up the topic of dio's breakup with black sabbath in 1992 when he didn't want to support ozzy osborne on tour yeah uh, i mean when you listen to dio talk about it there's a couple of interviews out there this is this is great like infamous bus interview with Theo. I don't know if you've seen that one on YouTube. And he's just ready. He's got the venom up to another level at that point. So uh, I can totally, from that, I can devise what, how it went down. Um, It was a bit of a disrespect to him. And I think he was constantly dealing with that um, throughout the career. Cause uh, no matter what, when you're, you come into a band like that, I'm sure like the maiden and stuff, Blaze probably felt that from uh, people saying, well, you're not Bruce or you know, Um, and that that's just going to happen. And I think it, it wore on him a little bit because they had built such a catalog. Um, And luckily I'm actually very happy that it ended the way it did. Uh, I mean, I'm not happy that Dio died of course, but the fact that that heaven and hell reunion thing is a beautiful moment i think in the overall story of the disrespect that happened and the fact that they came back and celebrated it all in such a huge amazing way um and there was no denying that it would have probably kept going a little bit longer the 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 whole we've been talking about the whole built to fail with the gillen and stuff like that they weren't built to fail they were legit um there's a reason why I kept coming back to it, and uh, there's a power there that's undeniable. Yeah, I, when you when you hear Dio talking about you know um, what happened between him and, and Tony Iommi and the rest of the band, I mean, you you can see that he's a little bitter about it. Obviously, you know, um, you can see that uh, I mean, even though he tries not to to let it show that there is uh, you know some some resentment there, and and I think what what really um i think what, what what really offended him probably was was the fact that you know they didn't they didn't really take his his feelings into account i mean he he they were thinking more of or at least that that's what what he thinks what he says they were thinking more of you know what that would do for the band let's say uh in terms of publicity or in terms of you know maybe uh you know, money that they would get from doing those concerts and from um, from other things. So, so yeah, I think he was a bit hurt that 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 his feelings weren't taken into account. That you know, the fact that Ozzy was his his uh, his rival in a way. Uh, you know, that that opening the con because that, I think that's something else that he thought we are going to open for for Ozzy. I mean, we're going to be the openers. I mean, I, I wasn't going to be a part of that. He says so. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a shame. He thought that, yeah, maybe if they had, uh, you know, they had taken maybe his feelings more into account that they could have continued as a band and then they would have made even more money that they probably made from, from those two concerts. And, uh, also the fact that, um, uh, you know, uh, 
Ozzy first, you know, right, right after those concerts, Ozzy said, yeah, I'm going to go and, and be back on Black Sabbath again. You know, I'm going to be, you know, they were going to reunite. And then I think that didn't happen in the end. It, it never uh, came to to fruition. So, yeah, but not right there and then when they thought it was going to happen. So you said all of this happened for nothing. You know, they, they would just destroy the band or maybe he even thinks, you know, he, he insinuates that it was sort of a ploy even by Ozzy himself to try and break up the band. So um, I don't know. I think there was a bit of an overlap there, too. I think uh, Apsy did kind of hang on a little bit and back and forth um, for some tour stuff because uh, it was uh, I, like that uh, in particular, that last gig, that one that was supposed to be Ozzy's farewell gig and uh, uh, Halford filled in, um, but they didn't. Yeah, but it was funny because so they were doing an Aussie reunion at the end of Aussie's set. I mean, it's the big farewell, which is bullshit, obviously. But they were going to get they got they got everybody back. They got Bill Ward, Caesar, and Iommi. So the original four closed the whole deal down. But they also Sabbath also opened that night, and they got Halford in to sub in for Dio, who didn't want to do it. But Abbasi was still there too, which is funny. Yeah, like they didn't, uh, Ward didn't switch over there. I mean, Ward was in a, Ward hasn't been in uh, road ready for <laughs> since, I, I think, <laughs> TechX or something. I don't know. He he fell off in a way that like, uh, I kind of understand why they, they, they phase him out in that sense. I don't like that they have, because, you know, like it's, you need that original four for what they were trying to wrap up things, but they did that a couple of times and obviously, anyway, Apathy was still there for that gig and uh, got the go-ahead from Dio. I know Dio was totally pissed, but Apathy has said in interviews, like, yeah, he was just completely done, but he, I literally sat down with him and he was like, no, you got to do that. You can't just leave him high and dry like that. And if, if, if Dio wasn't a fucking class dude, you know, like he could say like, no, you're coming with me or I'm not using you again. And like, we're going to sink this shit. But no, it was just, he's like, I have a problem with this. It's not your problem, dude. So I love I love hearing that because that tells me that he's not he's not a control freak in, in the sense of the people around him. I think he's very human to people. He's a control freak. And he just cares about how he's how the shit comes out. Um, and we can't knock somebody for that. Otherwise, you get fucking Aussie just <laughs> doing what you want, doing whatever anybody tells him. No, I think he was right. Yeah, mm -hmm. he was he was right in a way because again, it was going to be uncomfortable. It was going to be awkward. He said, you know, they were trying to 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 get back together the whole band. You know, it was going to be Ozzy and Bill and uh, and Geezer and and Tony. Yeah, and he was going to feel like the third wheel. You know, what like, what am I doing here? You know, again, you know, he was a great man and and all that. But as you said, you know, he was human. And and in some of those interviews, he he says some actually uh some shocking things you know the way he talks about rich blackmore sometimes or um i think when um when he's talking about uh why a rainbow broke up and and he says that that uh rich blackmore wanted to to write more probably more love songs like songs with different themes and and things like that and he was like you know he he this guy he wants me to write love songs when none of his marriages have worked <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. I mean, he, he could have a, he had a sharp tongue and I'm sure he used it. I'm sure he used it um, more than once. And again, you know, he's entitled to, he was human, he wasn't perfect. And, and of course he was going to have some, you know, his, his low moments. Um, also, I saw another interview, you know, as well, where he is 
asks because uh, I think the guy asks him. Um, he says, uh, "Okay, uh, Rob Halford says that um, that uh, he he one of the ways in which he relaxes after a show is to go and meet the fans and you know and sign autographs and and be with them and all that." And he's like. You know, sometimes I'm I'm just tired after a show, and and I don't really want to go and do that. You know, that's not the way uh, in which I relax, and I have to go and and do all these interviews, maybe talk to people that I don't want to talk to, and all of that. You know, it I, I can't imagine that being you know a really uh, something that yeah, I mean, comes along with the fame, I suppose, but it can be really taxing as well on your you know on your on your mental health, I suppose. Yeah, you know, having to deal with all of this, having to appear nice all the time, to, to be polite, to be smiling. And uh, yeah, and sometimes you're just tired and want to go home. I mean, but again, you know, that's something else that he says that he learned uh, indirectly from Richie Blackmore because he says that he was uh, he was always very rude and very cruel to people in general and to fans. And, and he says, you know, that's something I learned uh, from him that you know that wasn't something that I wanted to do I wanted to be nice to these people who allow me to to do what I like to do and and who are there you know come to my concerts and all of that and just like that the Mob Rules era lineup reunion with Ronnie James Dio, Vinnie Apice, Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler was finished due to an ill-fated attempt to reunite with Ozzy Osbourne which history would tell us later on is uh, it was maybe a little premature although it did eventually end up happening as we all know but before we get to that point, we will cover off the next reunion Black Sabbath had with a former singer. That, of course, is Tony Martin. This one would be a little more fruitful than when Tony popped in on the Dehumanizer sessions to fill in the blank there when Dio left temporarily. Uh, and it would produce two albums, uh, Cross Purposes and Forbidden, which would be the last Black Sabbath album for 18 years in name that being the album 13, or if you count The Devil You Know, which I do, it would be the last Black Sabbath album in 14 years. Um, but that's jumping ahead a little bit. Next time I speak to you, we will be discussing the reunion again with Tony Martin and the final days of Black Sabbath as an album-producing unit for quite some time. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you again to all of my guests. That's Philip, Alejandra, Joe and Rai. And I look forward to speaking to you next time when we delve into... The final two Tony Martin albums and the start of serious talk about a reunion with Ozzy Osbourne. And just because it's such a bizarre concept, I'm going to play out on Rob Halford singing with Black Sabbath in 1992. Here's the song Heaven and Hell. Until the next time, this is heaven and hell.